0: Welcome to Itihasa, an Indic history podcast and you are listening to episode 12 of the season Vijayanagara. In the last episode, we explored in depth the reasons for Thirmala being forced to abandon the capital permanently and falling back to Penukunda. We also looked into the rule and legacy of Thirmala during such a critical time for the empire that caught a new lease of life from the brink of an implosion. The fact that Vijayanagara is considered as one of the shining beacons, a glorious epoch of South Indian history and cherished by people of Andhra, Telangana and Karnataka especially, is a foregone conclusion. In this episode, we shall delve into the political conditions before the foundation of the mighty Vijayanagara Empire. These conditions, along with many factors, played a crucial role in forging of this glorious Hindu empire. Foundation of Vijayanagara is a very tough topic to even approach. There is no one definitive source. Every researcher and historian who has ever written anything on this, one has to understand that he or she has only presented an approximation and not the complete story. It's like a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle that's always missing a lot of pieces. Anyone who tells you that he has the definitive story on the foundation of Vijayanagara is either lying through his teeth or fooling himself. It mostly tends to be the latter. It's a Gordian knot, in short. Even today, there is a great debate among scholars on the origin, nativity and nature of Vijayanagara empire. It was Robert Soule's work A Forgotten Empire, Vijayanagara, published in 1900 that heralded serious study of Vijayanagara. After this, there were many works that dealt with the sources, origins, political, social, economic, cultural and administrative aspects of the empire. So in my research for this episode, I had no choice but to sift through hundreds of pages of writings on the origins spread across multiple sources from various periods. Books, newspaper articles, inscriptions, research papers, academic journals, old British gazettes, archaeological websites, state archives. Numismatic websites on the coins of the eras prior to and during Vijayanagara. The list goes on, you name it and I most probably would have touched it in my hunt. I'll be honest, the foundation of Vijayanagara episodes were the toughest ones to write so far. It's not a story that anyone can fit in a single 30-minute episode or even an hour-long episode. The last thing I would want is a diluted story in an attempt to keep it short. So in the interest of the quality of the story, I'll be taking at least three to four full length episodes to lay out the complete story and my own perspectives on this. While I've referred to multiple sources for this episode, two of the primary sources though would be Dr. Mosu Babu's scholarly work by title, Material Background to Vijayanagara Empire 1300 to 1500 AD, published in 2018. And the other one by K.A. Neelakanta Shastri Further Sources of Vijayanagara Empire, published 1946, and History of South India, published in 1955. It's worth mentioning about the different categories of Vijayanagara studies in existence. They can be split into colonial, nationalist, and post-independence perspectives and approaches. In order to understand Vijayanagara, it is important to understand the material culture, background, and the leadership of many regional polities that preceded it. After all, Vijayanagara could not have been born out of thin air one fine day, like some narratives claim to have happened. Vijayanagara was a culmination of an implosion of its predecessors, geographical factors, geopolitical pressures, initiative and vision of its founders, and finally the horrors that transpired in medieval South India during the 13th and 14th century with the onslaught of relentless Islamic invasions. As we move through the episodes on this topic, we will also look at the various theories and narratives on the origins and dissect them, refute them or confirm them as we go. Now let's begin our journey with a fact about India or Bharat. The entire Indian subcontinent was subjugated or conquered probably not more than three or four times in its entire recorded history prior to the inglorious British Raj. The first being under the rule of Mauryan Emperor Ashoka the Great the second being the rule of Alauddin Khilji and the third being under the despotic Mughal emperor Aurangzeb finally the last one being the Maratha empire that had its flag flying across the entire subcontinent after the collapse of Mughals the era that we will be focusing on will be the period after the arrival of Alauddin Khilji in Deccan and in South India Especially we will look at the political and cultural developments that occurred during first quarter of the 14th century as a sequel to the weakening of Tughlaq Sultanate during the rule of Muhammad bin Tughlaq. There will be an additional focus on history pertaining to southern Andhra Desa. It's really important to understand that while the entire subcontinent of India or Bharat lacked political unity for most of its existence, it made up for it in abundance with its cultural unity, a cultural unity that has manifested through ages. More or less, similar religion, philosophical traditions and literary conventions tied all the regions together tightly. This is in spite of variations in regional characteristics in religious beliefs, arts and literature. The beautiful language of Sanskrit enriched almost all regional languages and became one of the foremost mediums or vehicles of literary expression. It set conventions, themes and standards for various other regional or vernacular languages. In light of this, the cultural unity was without a doubt a factor of infusing nationalistic spirit to the people of this country. Having said that, this explosion of variety in regional expression began to inspire scholars and people of the day gradually people of the respective regions began to take pride in the literary wealth of their own language as unique and superior to those in other languages, in other parts of the country. The lack of political unity and the geographical factors too played a part in these regions becoming nations of their own, though with the same cultural core covering all of them. This invariably led to a phenomenon of subnationalism with contemporary scholars and historians from different linguistic regions taking to highlight the glories of their own regional cultures and with it, the rise in clamour for establishing regional supremacy and hegemony over their neighbours. The irony is, all these regional centres would still instinctively think of themselves as sons of Bharata Varsha. So when one looks at the Vijayanagara Empire from that lens, its glory and esteem ended up providing an umbrella of political and cultural integration to a significant portion of South India as a result of both soft and hard power. Relentless wars of expansionism and cultural efflorescence on the bedrock of the pluralistic principles of Hindu religion and culture is the name of the game for this empire. Even to this day, we can see both the Telugu and Kannada people vying with each other passionately to lay claim to the glories and legacy of Vijayanagara Empire. Each of them claims it to be their own. Even scholars and historians on both sides end up mixing their research with these passions. that the end result too exhibits visible signs of this regional skirmish. In this whole clamour for its legacy, most of them end up forgetting that the very legacy of this glorious empire was that it embraced all major linguistic domains of South India and contributed extensively to progress and flowering of all vernacular literatures, arts and architecture with its own signature style of the time. In the 13th and beginning of 14th century, South India was marked by the frequent wars of the competing hegemonies of four major kingdoms, the Hoyasalas, Kakatiyas, Pandyas and Yadavas, and not to mention the remnants of the dying Chalukya Cholas. Finally, resulting in the culmination of the collapse of all those kingdoms with the arrival of Khiljis and Tuglaks from the north. First, let's look at the Kakatiya Empire and its ruler Ganapati Deva, one of the most important personalities of Andhra Desa. He was a conqueror and empire builder whose policy of expansionism and empire building were laid by his grandfather, Prolada II and Uncle Rudradeva. It is important to understand briefly the antecedents of these characters, so we can appreciate and make sense of the policies employed by the successors Rudramadevi and her grandson Prataparudra. And this analysis of the political atmosphere pertaining to the rise and fall of these four competing kingdoms will help us understand in turn the political atmosphere in which the Vijayanagara empire was founded. And last but not least, depict the nature of centralized power structures of the time on which these empires were built, their strengths and weaknesses. Just like how we have to look at the Kakatiya, Hoysala, Pandya and Yadava kingdoms to understand the Vijayanagara Empire, we have to look at the Western Chalukyan Empire to understand the Kakatiya Empire. The purpose of going back further in time is to find patterns that keep repeating across all the four kingdoms or empires. Which then we can use as a lens and framework to help us put together the origins of these kingdoms. So, Prola II, the grandfather of Ganapati Deva of Kakatiyas, was a great conqueror and shrewd statesman. Prola II ruled from 1117 to 1157 AD. He was instrumental in cleverly assessing the political atmosphere at the time of the decline of the Western Chalukyan Empire. He rose from a position of being a petty chieftain to the ruler of an empire. What started as a small principality in Koravinadu, modern-day Varangal, ultimately became the nucleus of the Kakatiya Empire that embraced the widest extent of the Telugu-speaking country. Prola too feigned loyalty to his suzerain power, the Western Chalukyan Empire, even though it was fast declining in both power and prestige after the incessant wars through many generations with the Imperial Cholas and Chalukya Cholas. It is a 150-year war with the Cholas that drained both these empires in the end and adding to the Chalukyan wars were the internal civil wars after the death of Vikramaditya VI. Situations like these in the life cycle of an empire tend to benefit the most the local chieftains or nayakas who are subordinate to the ruling power structure at the empire in question. As it is in these times that the subordinates grow in power at the cost of the central power structure. It's an interesting dynamic. As the empire starts declining, the military assistance of these vassals, nayakas or subordinate rulers becomes all the more important. There comes a point when the ruling dynasty is literally helpless and totally dependent on these nayakas. This in turn would feed into the increase of their political prominence and their own ambitions for independence. Some of these would challenge the suzerainty of the empire which would invariably necessitate warfare to suppress the rebellion. And this again would chip away the strength and stability of the empire. Also during these times, the local chieftains or Nayakas themselves would wage war on each other to gain an upper hand further weakening the central power structure. It would be interesting to see that the policy of Prola II was the latter method. Instead of rebelling against the ruling dynasty of the empire, as powerful vassals usually do, he chose to subjugate his fellow chieftains and even eliminate some of them. The thing that was clever about his policy was, he subjugated the other vassals under the banner of the ruling house and with the pretext of upholding the sanctity of the suzerain house. This way, he wouldn't be viewed as a threat to the royal throne and instead would be seen as a loyal vassal. It's a pretty solid feedback loop that only reinforced the vassal's power. The Thousand Pillar Temple or Rudraishwana Swami Temple in Hanamakunda, Telangana has an inscription of Prola II and his son Rudradeva I describing their exploits in fine Sanskrit poetry. This inscription supposedly paints a romantic picture of Prolatu's utmost loyalty to the ruling royal dynasty and how he waged wars on behalf of it. This is a classic example of fine false propaganda of the age, as it was nothing but farther than the actual truth. The same inscriptions also describe how Prolatu, captured in battle, Tailapatri. The last Chalukyan emperor and repulsed Jagadeva, who had laid siege to the capital Hanumakunda. In addition to this, many other battle exploits are listed in the inscriptions. But we will focus on Tailapatri because he was decisively defeated by Velanati Choda prince Rajendra Choda II in the Battle of Daksarma on the banks of Godavari river in 1142 AD. This event had massive downswing in the fortunes of the Western Chalukya ruler and upswing in the political and military importance of Prola II. This indirectly led to Prola II finally flexing his muscles against his suzerain, which leads to Tilapatri and his loyal vassal Jagadeva launching an attack on Prola II in a failed attempt to cut short his size. This nicely illustrates how Prola II was ultimately a major annoyance to the declining empire. And all the Nayakas or vassals that Prola II eliminated earlier under the royal banner were probably the real loyal ones that had to be disposed of first. But contrary to all our predictions, Prola II does not declare himself free of his suzerain. He instead spares the life of Tyleppa III and other vassals whom he captured in the battle and he lets the defeated emperor remain on his throne and he instead chooses the powerful yet subordinate position of Mahamandaleshwara. With this, he not only humbles the Chalukyan emperor but also elevates himself to the position of a super-vassal. The real power propping up the ruler who ended up becoming a ceremonial head. In this move of Prola II, we see his farsightedness and political acumen. He was certainly not hasty in eliminating the -the dead-in-the-water Chalukyan emperor because he didn't want to be in the bullseye of other Nayakas who might have seen him as an immediate threat, combined with each other and undermined him. He instead kept pretending to be loyal to the throne, basking in the aura of the Western Chalukyan empire and slowly appropriating its legacy as he built the foundations of his own empire, the Kakatiyas. Interestingly, we can see a similar pattern repeat in Prola II's contemporary ruling power in coastal Andhra Desa, the Velanati Chodas of Sandavolu, who adopt the same policy and reap similar benefits. This only further illustrates the inherent weakness of the central power structures in the medieval political system. Let's look at this side of the story to illustrate the similarity in depth. The Eastern Chalukyan prince Rajendra Choda, son of Rajaraja Narendra ascended the throne of Chola Empire in 1076 AD assuming the coronation name of Kulottunga Chola but sought to maintain Chalukyan hegemony over Vegi Mandala or also known as Andhra Desa. The listeners must be wondering now from where on earth the Eastern Chalukyan Empire came into picture and how a Chalukyan prince is sitting on the throne of Cholas. So, long story short, the original Badami Chalukyan Empire had gotten split into the western and eastern Chalukyan empires, which were at odds with each other. And then the eastern Chalukyan Empire's bloodline at one point married into the imperial Chola's bloodline, which gave birth to a unique chalukya Chola dynasty. So, due to some events that transpired, the eastern Chalukyan prince ends up inheriting the Chola throne. Hope this short context helps the listeners to understand this aspect. The Chola, Chalukya, Hoyasala, Kakatiya and Yadava history in itself is a whole season or two. These empires all weave into each other in overlapping time periods and get really complex. So in the interest of time and our sanity, this short story is all I can give at this time. Now let's come back to the Eastern Chalukyan prince ascending the throne of the late Chola Empire and assuming the coronation name of Kulotunga Chola. This event changes the political atmosphere which takes a new turn. As the centre of power shifts to the Tamil domains, this encouraged some of the powerful local chiefs and vassals of the Eastern Chalukyan Empire of Vengi in the region to assert themselves and proclaim their independence. As we saw earlier, this is an expected reaction or phenomenon. But the emperor Kulotunga Chola wanted to maintain his suzerainty over Andhra Desa by appointing his sons as his viceroys in that region. But these sons had no gravity of their own to assert control and project their power. They were hopelessly dependent on the powerful and loyal chieftains or nayakas of the region, for political support and military assistance alike. Like we saw earlier, this again feeds into the ambitions and power of these Nayakas at the cost of the empire's central power structure. In short, the loyalty of the chieftains or these Nayakas during this period was never absolute and only relative. It was more like a mask for their own political ambitions and thirst for independence, while waiting for an opportune moment to act on them. The Velanadi Chodas were one of the loyal and most powerful vassals of the Eastern Chalukyan Empire, who stood by their suzerain in fighting the Western Chalukyas and Eastern Gangas of Kalinga, and at the same time keeping other vassals of the Empire under their thumb under the pretext of protecting the royal throne. So on the other side, having consolidated his hold over the Western Andrudesa, a modern-day Telangana. The Kakatiya ruler Prola II makes a bold expansionist push into coastal Andhra Desa. Here, his power is checked by the Velanati Choda King, Gonkadi II, who is ruling over this region as a nominal subordinate to the Chalukya Chola Emperor, Rajaraja II. As per inscriptions in one of his expansionist battles, Prola II is killed by Gonkadi II on the battlefield. And the Crown Prince Rudradeva, who accompanied his father onto the field is forced to accept the Chalukya Chola dominance following the defeat. The prince is deprived of his political dignity in accordance with the medieval political custom after he comes under the Chalukya Chola umbrella. It's interesting to note that the victorious kings in medieval Andhra Desa used to appropriate the titles and epithets of the defeated kings and the latter could regain them only after a retaliating victory over the former. I personally find this extremely fascinating due to the fact that the rulers were so honour-bound that they would wait patiently to regain their honour on the battlefield. The premium that's put on their personal courage, honour and having to earn their titles in those days is certainly commendable. If one thinks about it, this is in stark contrast to our own times due to various reasons. The Kakatiyas, by accepting the dominance of Chalukya Chola Empire, were in fact accepting the overlordship of the powerful vassal Velanati Chodas, who wore the mantle of protectorship of the royal throne. In short, as nominal subordinates to the de jure sovereignty of the Chalukya Chola Emperor, the Vairanati Chodas were the de facto sovereigns of the empire's regions in coastal Andhra Desa. It was just like how Prola II was the de facto sovereign of the Western Chalukyan domains. And interestingly, the vassal Gunka II who killed Prola II immediately sends his general on an expedition across Godavari river to strengthen his suzerain Chalukya Chola. In other words, the Vairanati Chodas hold on the country and in turn increasing his own political importance with the Vailanati Chodas, the de facto rulers in the name of the De Empire. If you observe, this is like a self-repeating pattern. It's a fractal to be precise. The closer you keep going, you'll keep seeing the same patterns repeat. From this, we can understand one thing very clearly, that as the strength of centralized power structures depend on the support of the subordinate local Nayakas or chiefs, That ruled over distant parts of it, it was not an easy task to keep them always under control, and the emperor at the centre was often forced to project his military power in order to control them through fear. This meant that the emperor used to undertake frequent military expeditions over neighbouring powers and also lead the armies against rebellious chieftains. While this had the intended effect on the rebellious chieftains, making them fall in line, this had an unintended effect for the emperor. The loyal chiefs who used to accompany the emperor in these expeditions were elevated in their political importance and increase in their influence. This gradually led to rise in their own ambitions and set them up to rise against the empire at an opportune moment. As we saw in the beginning, the opportune moment most of the time tends to be during the decline of the empire. And hence Gunka II had set himself up to fall into the right place at the right time after Velanati Chodas eventually replaced the Chalukya Cholas for all practical purposes. While this does happen eventually, and during the rule of Rajendra Choda 2, son of Gunka II, the Velanati Choda hegemony reaches its high water mark, overshadowing its own diminished suzerain. The strength and stability of this new power is short lived after the death of Rajendra Choda II, and a civil war tears it apart. Finally, leading to the Battle of Palanadu, Palanadu, a place near Guntur in Andhra Pradesh, in which the Vailanadi Chodas are weakened. This gives the earlier humbled opponent Rudardeva of Kakatiyas a crucial window to exploit the weakness and occupy the coastal Andhra Desa. By 1185 AD, Rudradeva of Kakatiya had consolidated his grip on the new regions of the empire and the Vailanati Chodas had effectively been wiped out. And here on, the Kakatiyas became a powerful empire to reckon with. In 1262 AD, Rani Rudramadevi, daughter of Ganapati Deva, ascended to the Kakatiya throne and struggled to keep the hegemony of the empire intact. She is caught in the constant warfares battling both internal and external opponents trying to undermine both her and the empire. No guesses here, the internal opponents being the powerful local chiefs trying to assert themselves while growing in power relative to their suzerain. Rudram Devi ruled for 27 years till 1289 AD, which in itself is one of the rare occasions in the history of South India of a woman to ascend the throne and be celebrated in popular traditions and literature. While there is no doubt that Rudram Devi showed immense courage, political and military acumen in keeping both the local and external powers in check and maintaining the Kakatiya overlordship, the inherent weaknesses in the medieval polity as such was just too much for her to keep it under control. It's important to call out that she was a phenomenal warrior and her femininity was not the sole cause for the growing weakness of the Kakatiya Empire during her time. Rani Rudrama Devi was succeeded by her grandson Prataparudra, son of her own daughter Mummadamma, in the year 1295 AD. It was during Prataparudra's reign that the Kakatiya Empire finally collapsed in 1323 AD. It was mostly due to two main reasons. First one being the earlier discussed phenomenon of centrifugal forces from the vassals and subordinates. And the second one being the repeated Islamic invasions for over two decades. This is not to say that Prataparudra was a weak or incompetent Kakatiya monarch. He was anything but that. It was again, like I mentioned earlier, the political system of the day was just too much to handle for even a man of immense strength. And adding to that, there were some tactical blunders that he committed in his wars with the Muslim sultans from up north, which compounded the empire's woes and accelerated its implosion. This whole analysis so far only goes to suggest that the political order in medieval Andhra Desa was predominantly local and fortunes of centralized power structures were completely locked into them. We have to ask why was this so? Why didn't the centralized power structures of these empires in those times develop or have their own redundant systems that could generate the force required to sustain their power projection? Well, the answer lies in the fact that the central power structures of the empires were primarily interested in only extending their realms to keep increasing their revenues with the political weapon of annexation. The political and cultural integration of the empire wasn't really a priority or of importance to them. And this meant that they gave free hand to their vassal states to manage their own affairs autonomously with least interference in their internal matters. Of course, as long as they chose to remain loyal and keep contributing to royal coffers by sending in their share of men and arms to their empire's army. This then meant that there would always be these centrifugal forces within the empire's provinces which were always at odds with the centripetal forces of the empire. This phenomenon was more or less the same with Pandya, Yadava and Hoysala kingdoms too. Similar patterns were repeating all over the place. Having said that, the story wouldn't be complete without us looking at the woes of these kingdoms that have a special place in the annals of South Indian history and culture. The impact they and their collapse had on the empires that came later cannot be understated, as we will see later. With this, we will end the current episode in which we looked at the medieval South Indian polity through the lens of power structures. We also looked at the kingdom of Kakatiya and its rise to power, along with the power dynamics between it and its rival kingdoms. I sincerely hope the listeners enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please do hit the subscribe button and leave a rating and a review. A huge thank you for taking the time to listen to the show. In the next episode, we will explore political conditions in the kingdoms of Pandyas and Yadavas. And then we will also see the rise of Delhi Sultanate and the impact of its ascendancy on the kingdoms of the south. I hope to see you soon in the next episode. Till then, this is Nadendra Vikram, your host and narrator, signing off. Hope you have a great weekend.